And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the full of a feast that is the Coot Street Podcast! Gee, Jonathan, that's, you sound just like Cheryl Morgan. <laughs> Cheryl, Cheryl, for people who don't listen to every episode of the podcast, Cheryl did a reasonable, I thought, imitation of Jonathan's imitation. And in fact, we, we haven't had a, had a moment to actually stop on the podcast proper and thank mm. her for uh, sitting in for me the, you know, the other week. We now know that should I be struck by lightning, the Coot Street podcast will not be simply dependent on uh, record, you know, dropping in recordings of me from previous episodes. Well, that would be ghoulish, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, it would. You know, I hope for everybody's sake that if anything happens to either of us, the Coot Street podcast comes to an inglorious end. <laughs> we need to put this in our will or something like that, because the last thing I want is somebody... I don't know. Somebody named Kud <laughs> podcast. Yes, yeah, so or you, or you suddenly you know, t- turn around and find that Vox Day is putting it out. <laughs> we will not call him Vox Day anymore. I, I learned something. When I was in this wonderful conference in, in Finland called Ar- Archipelagon. Um, the only other American guest. There were four guests. Mm-hmm. Uh, Karin Tidbeck, who has been on the podcast with us. Johannes Senesalo, who, mm-hmm. while we were there, this astonishing five-year grant from the Finnish government to write. That's a civilized country if I've ever heard of one. And the other two American guests were um, Paris McBride and her husband, George R.R. R. Martin. Oh, him! Okay. And we were talking about the whole issue of, um, of Vox Day. And, and George, by the way, is very upset about this and... Uh, we can get into that a little bit uh, in a minute, and, and as, as well you should be. But Paris pointed out something which I think is a good piece of advice. We should not call this guy Vox Day. We should call him, as she calls him, Little Teddy. Mm-hmm. His name is Theodore Beale. I think if he wants to put a pretentious pseudonym on his website, he has a right to do that. But I don't think we need to use that pseudonym. And that's her point. And sure. I thought it was a good point. Fair enough. Um, generally, though, I guess my, my only problem there is that when I think about other things that I'd like to call Vox Day or Theodore Beale, Little Teddy really isn't on the list. I, Little Teddy, have you seen uh, the, I've not, I shouldn't be talking because I haven't seen either one of them, but have you seen either of these films called Ted, about a teddy bear? I've seen ads for them, does that count? I've seen trailers for them. Well, about where I have, I mean, it's, I keep waiting for them to show up for free on television. But the suggestion of a foul-mouthed teddy bear it just strikes me as being very appealing when we're discussing this whole matter. The word that comes to mind when I think of him is twerp. Uh, there are nice twerps, though. Okay, if you say so. And also, now that I think about it, apparently the dictionary definition of twerp includes a pregnant goldfish, so it probably uh, is putting down pregnant goldfish. I did see... Huh. A, um, an interesting thing today that I've not had a chance to process a whole lot about uh, sad puppydom, and that is that apparently one of these, the main sad puppy uh, nominees, Michael Williamson, has announced he's voting no award for everything and thinks pe- other people should too. That's news to me. And um, you know, one and wonders if this is because he finally read this stuff. Um, That could be. It's uh, But... Reading the stuff and 
we're only a few days away from the deadline for Locus. Yeah, for, yeah, I think uh, so. Hugo voting now, now, this episode's actually uh, going to come out on the weekend of the 26th, so I think we'll be okay. right on the cusp of voting, yeah. So the Hugo voting is either just over or just about to be over. And I guess the question about the no award vote, and I put no award in some categories, uh, not all, uh, partly because I don't want to be sort of coerced into reading bad fiction. I read the first couple of paragraphs of some of these things, and there is some bad fiction there. But um, there, there is. But I mean, I've, I've put some, I put some time into it. I mean, I wanted to take it seriously, and I, I voted with my conscience, having read stuff. But yeah, I thought there was a, an amount of work that didn't belong on a Hugo ballot, and you know, such is my prejudice that I, you know, I believe that I read a lot of work that did belong on a Hugo ballot that was displaced because of it. Well, that's that's kind of what the issue is. That this is a um, this this is a situation in which um, essentially you're being coerced into reading fiction you otherwise wouldn't read, on the theory that my dad used to do this to me. It's it's, it's in the theory of a parent wants you to eat pig entrails or or things that my dad liked that were just horrendous to me, because once I taste them, I think I'll li- he thinks I'll like them. No. Once you taste them, they're just as bad. No, they're worse than you expected. <laughs> so so I, I don't think that an awards ballot should be a means of forcing me to eat various kinds of pig entrails. I don't know that I could possibly say anything to, to cap that. <laughs> All I can say it's is pig- I, I, I am or- desperate for the end of August, Gary. I really am. Um, for, uh, for several reasons. This damn thing will be over, which will be a pleasure. Uh, we will know what has transpired with the, with the, the results and seen, if you like, the actual non-puppy ballot revealed, which will be curi- interesting. Mm-hmm. And we'll begin to see the shape of whatever they think they're going to do next. I guess we'll also have seen the outcome of the business meeting and whether they're all mad enough to go and actually make rules changes to the Hugos or not. So there's all that. But, you know, look, it'll yeah. happen. Who cares? What else is happening, Gary? Forget yeah, the Hugos. I don't want to talk about it. I don't even know. Yeah, and, and the rules changes again. We would need to get Cheryl back on to explain this. There was actually a panel on the Hugo rules proposals at Archipelagon, and I was not able to attend it. But Cheryl was on it, and Farah Mendelson, and some a uh, couple of other people. And some of the proposals sound almost as bad as the current situation. Elaborate rules for voting. It's uh, the, 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 there's there's an odd kind of thing going on, particularly in the United States where you have certain right-wing politicians in a lot of states finding ways to restrict voter eligibility, just like they did in the 1940s and 1950s. Well, at the same time, the Hugo Awards are trying to find ways to restrict voter eligibility. So so our instincts as democracy-loving citizens are kind of in conflict here. <laughs> Tell you what I'm reading, Gary, to change the subject. A book that I okay, think has either just come, just come out or about to come out and ties in with the episode of the podcast that came out Last week, as the rest of the world listens to this, now, l- last week, through nothing other than the vile, <laughs> the, the pathetic incompetence of one, one, of your, one of our correspondents here in this conversation, but only one, uh, I was not party to your co- conversation with Samuel R. Delaney, much to my great chagrin. Um, I know, that was unfortunate. And I apologize for that again uh, to everybody. But I am reading Stories for Chip, which is the anthology that's coming out round about mm. now in honor of Samuel Delaney. And it's quite an interesting book. 
it's the sort of book that annoys me in some ways because it's full of essays and stuff which should be somewhere else and there should be stories there. But there's some yeah. really terrific stories in the book. I, I don't know whether they're necessarily Delaney-esque stories, which you could uh, you know, argue might be what you'd put in there. And there's certainly, I don't think, that I've stumbled across yet, you know, continuations of the Jewels of Aptor or you know, Dal you know, Dalgren stories or anything. But um, there are some very good stories by the likes of Nick Harkaway and Jeff Ryman and, and uh -huh. others, you know, uh, that I'm just sort of dipping through now. And I would recommend it to everybody. Yeah, and you mentioned Jeff Ryman's story on on your Facebook. I did, and it it does strike me. I've not seen the anthology, and I I apologize to the anthology uh, because I don't think that either Chip or I mentioned that when we were uh, doing the podcast. But it does raise an interesting issue when you do a tribute anthology, and there have been recent tribute anthologies to Gene Wolfe and Ray Bradbury, and I think there's one for Bob Silverberg. Uh, there was one for Jack Vance. I don't think you. I don't think you should try to imitate the author's style or try to write a sequel or a, uh, the the Gene Wolfe anthology had some very good stories in it. I thought the ones that, with one or two exceptions, the ones that didn't work were the ones that tried to sound like Gene Wolfe. Now, and, and, and the, the Bradbury anthology, it, the the thing about Bradbury is that it's actually very easy to sound like Bradbury. But the best stories in that anthology that I recall, one of them was, was, was Kelly Link's uh, Two Houses. Yes. Which gets at some of the flavor of Bradbury and some of the prose, and it's very deliberate, but it's completely a Kelly Link story otherwise. I, I think that's true. I think there are three or four different paths through, through the, the tribute anthology. You know, it's like you can simply get a group of writers who feel they were deeply influenced by the by the the, the mm. author that you're honoring you can get people writing in the style of the person you're honoring people writing in the worlds of the, the you know the, the the person you're honoring you know and one one or two others i mean i look back and i think it's, it's interesting to look at the uh, what's the name of the book in, in honor of the king i think it's called which is a collection edited by Marty Greenberg in honor of Heinlein. And I was, I'm not yeah. Heinlein, sorry. In, 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 terrible. In honor of Tolkien. It's a big, big fantasy anthology done in honor of Tolkien. And actually had some terrific stories in it. And because of copyright, of course, they couldn't actually touch on anything to do with, you know... Middle Earth. Middle Earth or anything yeah. like that. So it had to just be in it. Uh, but then... Um, Marty lined up and edited an anthology around the same time in honor of Asimov. And, uh -huh. and actually, the best story there was a foundation story written by Scott Card. You know? Well, the thing about that is... So it can go either Asimov, way. Uh, well, it can go either way, but you're talking about... Um, uh, Asimov and Heinlein might be the, not the best examples. Asimov, as he himself boasted, wrote in a flat, transparent sure. style. He was a stylist. If you want to sound like Asimov... Just about any competent short story writer in the yeah. field right now can sound like Asimov. That's true. And that's why my caveat on the approach you take is how idiosyncratic is the author that you're dealing with. So, for example, you know, when you're attempting to honor Gene Wolfe, you are yeah. foolish to attempt to try to write like Gene Wolfe, frankly, Absolutely. because you're not going to. I think should someone ever do a, a Lafferty or a Waldrop tribute volume, the same would be absolutely true. Though I can think yeah, of writers exactly. to put in either book. Um, I've considered doing a Libra book, or a Libra book, sorry. And, mm. you know, 
I would not choose to have somebody trying to write Lankmar stories, I don't think, on the balance of it. it and, and generally when you've seen it be done, it's never done terribly well. I mean, think about, to expand it beyond anthologies for a second, how successful um, sequels by second parties are to well-known books. And you can't think of too many successful ones, can you? I can think of a lot of disastrous ones. Mm-hmm. But I mean, okay, you got competent ones like when Terry Bisson came in and finished the sequel to Canticle for Leibowitz, right? Because because Terry is a very competent writer. Um, and then you've got people writing new James Bond books, writing new Sherlock Holmes books, all this kind of stuff. But they never quite work out as well. They don't, and sometimes um, even when you have a very competent writer, it doesn't work out as well. I mean, my favorite example of a series uh, we've talked before about about the Dune series when it left. Frank Herbert's hands, but what about the Rendezvous with Rama series when it sort of left Arthur C. Clarke's hands and became a Gentry Lee? I don't know. If, has Gentry Lee written anything in the last 20 years at all? Not that I'm immediately um, aware of, and the, I mean, those books were theoretically at least co-written with Clarke. Well, and it was yeah, before but, he, and, and, and early, yeah, but long enough before his decline in health that you would think he was at an active participant. And from a distance, they seemed fairly awful. Uh, I read a couple of them, and, and, and Gentry Lee was not a skilled author in the sense that Clark was, and was simply, you know, manipulating the material. I don't think that Gregory Benford was terribly successful in writing a sequel to Clark, even though he updated the science and made it more uh, when he was doing Beyond the Fall of Night. Uh, and that's a very competent writer. Um, uh, uh, well, no, Greg goes beyond competent, but what I would, and I don't think you, know, you meant that in a negative way, but I actually think for some reason that I can't quite put my finger on, and I'd need to think about it a lot more, attempting to sequelize Clark is a really bad idea and has been uniformly a failure because it's not just Benford, it's also Broderick, and it's also, I mean, Lee collaborated, um, Fred Poles, right. half-finished, collaborated, you know, and there are probably several other examples if I thought long enough, but there are no my success stories. No, they're, 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 they're not. I mean, and, and it's true by the end of his... I mean, once you become a franchise writer, then you have people completing 200-word outlines. I think there was a, a, an earthquake novel that was basically written by, I think, Mike McQuay. I may be misremembering the name. On the basis of a page-long outline by Clark, if I'm, not, if I'm yeah. mistaken, somebody yeah. will correct me. But the fact is, <coughs> very few science fiction writers have gotten to the point where Tom Clancy did or where James Patterson has, where you essentially um, farm out you know, your fiction to various other people with outlines. Well, uh, I mean, you say that, but actually I, I think you're wrong. Now that I think oh, really? about it, I think you're wrong. Because surely isn't that exactly what Bain books do? Isn't that what David Weber and Eric Flint do? Um, isn't, that what Larry, isn't that what Larry Niven does these days? Well, Larry Niven has done that, that's true. Um, okay, maybe you're right, but the point <laughs> is that those, those are those are those are a separate category. I don't see that as a category of science fiction. I see that as a category of franchise best-selling fiction. Okay, where basically become a certain and 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 very good writers get involved in this for very good reasons. I, I'm, I'm sure we have right now an ongoing series of novels being written by Stephen Baxter based on essentially some ideas by Terry Pratchett, the Long Earth series. Um, 
Stephen Baxter is very good at what he does yep. when he's being Stephen Baxter, uh, but he can't sound like Terry Pratchett. Yeah, and I'm, so what he does, what he does is he succeeds in sounding like apparently the very young Terry Pratchett when when Pratchett was conceiving this series in the first place, before he developed that unique voice that became, of course, what we know in this world. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I was not one of those people who was heartened by the announcement that Steve Baxter and Al Reynolds were going to do a sequel to uh, an Arthur Clarke story. Mm-hmm. I felt that that was a disappointing choice because I really like the work of both writers and I think they're really interesting and I think them working together is really interesting. But I think that Clark is just not the right lens to get reflected through. So, Well, that's probably true. And uh, in defense of this kind of sequelizing, uh, several years ago, when uh, after, after Foundation became a franchise, decades after it was written, and the Three Bs, uh, people our age are the only ones who remember the Three Bs, but Bear, Benford, and, and um, Bryn. Bryn, all wrote sequels to Foundation stories. And pretty much to, to a T, every one of them was better written and had more substantial characterization than any of the original stories did. But made, but made no impact. Th- they made no impact because why does... Okay, this is, this is an embarrassing thing to mention for people who, are like us, are fond of early science fiction. Why does somebody need to write a good novel in the Foundation universe? Well, let's face it. If I, were, if I were to go out on a limb, and I don't know this, and I've never sp- spoken to Greg Bear, Greg Benford, or David Brin about this particular issue... Mm. I would put it down to exactly one thing, a large chunk of cash. Uh, the story was told about Clark himself when he was working on 2010, the sequel to 2001, that, um, he, that somebody interviewed him and said, what are you going to write about? And his response was something along the lines of, I don't know, but for a million dollars, I'll think of something. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I can't... First of all, I have nothing bad to say about any writer who picks up something that will make cash for them. Foundation was a franchise. Elizabeth Hand has novelized X-Files movies. James Blish wrote Star Trek stories. Um, uh, Brian Evanson wrote an Alien vs. Predator novel. Uh, more power <laughs> to them. Um, yeah, we're going to circle around this, but I mean, actually, it's interesting. Just this week, I saw people echoing complaints online from more conservative souls than I about the new Ghostbusters movies that's being made, where they've mm-hmm. replaced the male cast with an all-female cast. Yes. And I saw, the, I saw a photo of the, of the cast, and I thought, that looks like a lot of fun. I'm really interested in that. In some ways, far more than I would have been with just a straight third Ghostbusters movie with Dan Aykroyd yeah. and the crew again. And it's because, for what it's worth, I think, if you change the perspective of the characters that you're looking at, you get different stories. And that's what makes it interesting to me. And because I was thinking, it's like, well, if I had absolute control of the Foundation universe and I could do anything, you know, in 2015, what would I do? And I'm going, well, the Killer Bee stuff, I, I, I think they're all still in print, believe it or not. And I'm, I, you know, I assume they did well enough and everyone was happy, though they didn't continue on with more. But it would be interesting to go and get Anne Leckie, and Cameron Hurley and Lauren Bucus and get them to write 
a tri- new trilogy of Foundation novels and see what you'd come up with because it would be different. That's interesting. That's yeah. a very interesting idea. And it's, and it's um, not just a case of let's be a social justice warrior or let's just flip it, but, but, but you'd get a different perspective and that would be interesting. Well, and the, the, those authors were particularly chosen, I suspect, or chose themselves because they were all in one way or another Clarkian authors. They had written things that build on Clarkian ideas. and that sort of, So, so the, the goal of that series was to do exactly the opposite of what you're talking about. It was oh, not to give a different perspective. Uh, well, the, it was that's to give it. more of the same. That's exactly the truth. I mean, the exact truth of it is that these are commercial decisions, not artistic decisions. And that's why when I used to talk about getting Gene Wolfe to write a Star Trek novel, uh-huh. which I think would be a fabulous idea. It would be great. Or getting Juno Diaz to write a Foundation novel. Or, you know, getting wh- whoever, you know. There are all kinds of ways you could play against what you'd expect and then bring out a different kind of story and make it worthwhile and interesting. But that's not what that kind of whole thing is about. It's about it's generally really safe about continuation of a franchise. Well, the, the, the idea of... The, well, the reason Foundation would work well for this and the reason... Um, oh, probably some other franchises that we could name would... would, would so many pe- people could write contemporary Clifford Simax City stories, I suppose. But Foundation is kind of a generic outline. It's, you know, the history of the Roman Empire in the far future. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have a lot of characterization. It doesn't have a lot of style. Um, I taught that, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before. I, I tried teaching that in a science fiction class one time. One of my students came up after a week of discussing it and said, do you realize nothing happens in this entire novel? It's nothing. People talking about what's going to happen and people talk about what happened. Yeah. Uh, um, it's, 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 it's the least adventurous science fiction adventure ever written. But because of that, it's a framework into which an Anne Leckie, for example, or a Karen Lord could write a completely interesting original um, perspective on it. But they, unfortunately, that's not where the market is. Well, also, I think the other thing you'd have to allow, allow those writers to have, and it's something which, again, I don't think uh, franchise owners would allow you to do, is turn and say, it's non-canonical, right? In other words... Uh, Anne Leckie, you can write a, uh, a foundation novel if you want to, and you can do whatever you want. You can take, you can pick off and run off in, it in your own direction and build your own thing with it, right? And we won't limit you to the fact that, you know, we don't actually talk about women in foundation at all, or we don't talk about the underclasses, or we don't talk about whatever else it might be you want to talk about. So that you got free, you don't have the freedom, sorry, you have the freedom of not having to work to a Bible. It's like, if you went to Anne Leckie right now and said, Anne, I'll give you a million dollars to write a Star, a Star Wars novel, and Anne said, you know uh-huh. what, I would like a million dollars, that sounds like fun, I would do that. They would then send her a 500-page Bible, telling her all the things she can't do. That's true. Uh, and, 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 but pe- people who get into those situations know they're getting into those situations. Oh, yeah. And it, it does bother me when a very good writer... Um, it, it doesn't bother me, because I understand the situation. But uh, somebody who started writing franchise novels was Karen Travis, who'd written a couple of brilliant novels on her own, and clearly can make more money you know, doing, I think it's in the Star Wars universe. And I read one of her Star Wars novels, and it's actually a very good Star Wars novel. But my point is this. My point is that some franchises, Star Wars is kind of... Star Wars is different because it's a corporate franchise. Its, it's Bible is determined by some committee somewhere, I'm sure. Foundation is just a fairly generic kind of loose-limbed 
future history that people could fit into. <coughs> but would anybody actually try to write a new Hainish story from, from the Gwen's universe? That would be such a foolish thing to do. That would be really, really risky to do, even though you could make well, arguments that the planet actually, of illusion, or city, uh, well, city okay. of illusions. We're now talking I'm about, actually, in a weird way, the difference between, even though they are closely related and I acknowledge that, the difference between genuine fan fiction and franchise fiction. And they have, they have characteristics in common. That's the point. And, you know what, I'm sure that any number of writers have written on their own dime as stuff they just wanted to do. Hainish stories or whatever else it might be, you know. I mean, come on, John Scalzi sits down and writes himself a, a little fuzzy novel. Now, he ends up yeah. selling it because he's John Scalzi, and he found a perfectly good and good way to do that. But you're still, it's still like fan fiction because he just wanted to do it for the hell of it. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to tell those stories. It's just sharing them with the world becomes more, more of an issue. And uh, have a, having a publisher turn around and say, let's do a Le Guin tribute volume, and you get to do a dispossessed story, and you get to do a, uh, you know, the, the Layers of Heaven story, and you can do another world for, uh, another world, word for world is, you know, herbaceous border uh -huh. or something, and everyone will go, oh, that's a terrible idea. Yeah. yeah it, 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 the same thing would be if you, if you said to somebody, okay, let's just write a couple of stories set somewhere in the Book of the Long Sun, uh, by the, the Gene Wolfe you know, mm -hmm. universe. Uh, that, that would be... And, and, and a couple of people, I don't think they, I don't think anybody did Long Sun. Actually, there was, as I recall, a Michael Swanwick story in the Gene Wolfe tribute anthology, which was pretty good and a pretty good echo of, 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 mm. of Wolfe's thoughts. But, but those, are, those are literary constructs that are of a piece. They're not franchises. Star Wars is a franchise. Star Trek is a franchise. You could make an argument that Foundation is a franchise. Uh, I don't think you can do that with other works. Now, when you get back to somebody like Fritz Leiber, what I would do with a Fritz Leiber tribute anthology would... No, I wouldn't want anybody to write directly a, um, um, a Lankmar story. But look, look at what Lankmar has done. You've got, you've got Michael Chabon's Gentleman of the Road, which is influenced by that. You've got Joanna Russ, who's influenced by that. Uh, China Mieville and New Crobazon was influenced by that. Even Terry Pratchett in Ankh Morpork. So you have people who have picked up the idea of this sort of magical, bustling, corrupt city and taken it in all kinds of different directions. If you have writers working on their own dime, working on their own cities that are clearly inspired by Liber, you're doing a much better tribute to Liber than trying to solicit imitations of his own work. Yeah. I don't suppose you could do a, a an anthology of stuff about city of, of that's that kind of stuff and actually steal the never used Delaney title, could you? And do the splendor and misery of bodies and cities. That's interesting. I don't know. I wanted to write that book. I really wanted him to write that book. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm glad you asked him the question, but huh, he's never going to write that book. No, he's not. He's 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 pretty much. Uh, I think. Um, done with that kind of fiction, um, but 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 you raise another interesting um, idea when you started to talk about. Um, I've, I've completely lost the thought I had there in a minute, a minute ago, but it, it'll, it'll come back to me. The the idea that some writers create a kind of 
I don't know, moral or intellectual space, which is not the same thing as saying this is a setting of a city I've invented, this is a setting of a space a generation spacecraft I've invented. This is simply a mode of writing that I pioneered and see what the rest of you can do with this this kind of mode of writing. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? A, a, a uh, little, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not... Maybe. I, I, I don't know where this goes. I mean, uh, I mean, there are tribute anthologies. Some of them are interesting. Some of them have a few interesting stories in them. There's been a lot of them of late as people cast around and as, as the 60s generation of great science fiction writers... You know, sort of become the you know the the elderly uh, the, the sort of gray heads of science fiction and fantasy, and that, that's a perfectly sort of honorable and 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 good thing to to honor those people. And uh, actually, it's interesting who it who it gets done for because I was just thinking, you know, no one talks about doing a stories in honor of John Varley. You know, because there's someone whose entire career just fell apart, right? Yeah, and I don't think that's. I mean, in fact, can you think of any other, because I'm now just skipping off over other places, can you think of any other writer in the history of the field whose career comes so clearly in two different acts and which are so much at, at opposites to one another? I mean, there's the, the John Varley of the 1970s is cutting-edge, mm-hmm. transgressive, uh, is interesting, is vibrant, is transforming the field, right? I mean, he came in, he's talking about gender in different ways, he's talking about all kinds of things, and people are just like, ah, John Varley, the biggest thing in the world. He goes off and has his terrible movie experience with Millennium. Right. Comes back and writes a pile of Heinlein pastiches. That's, yeah, and, and as a result, his career seems to have gotten derailed from what it once was, but but you mentioned Varley, and it, it, it raises another question in my mind, and this is shifting the topic again. Oh, yeah. This is what we do on the Coot Street podcast, folks. We just change topics at random whenever we feel like Without it. Without actually having discussed um, them in any meaningful way. <laughs> well, I was, talking, I was talking to George Martin a little bit about that, and as I said, he was upset about people gaming the Hugos, and he suspects that there's been a certain amount of gaming possibly in the past. And then uh, last week at ReaderCon, I was talking to Gordon Van Gelder, uh, who... It turns out, had I've not been able to find it, but he said he'd put this back up on the uh, fantasy and science fiction website. There was an interesting article by Tom Dish in the early 70s in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction under the title of the Labor Day Group. And the Labor Day Group was taking a number of young writers to task for having, well, not quite, he didn't quite say they were gaming the Hugos, but they were, they were called the Labor Day Group because this is a group of young writers who could be counted on to show up at world cons uh, and to kind of promote each other's work and to kind of sort of become fan celebrities. One of them obviously was George Martin. Another one was um, John Varley. Another one I think was Ed Bryant. Um, prob- and, and another one which Gordon reminded me of, another one was Tanith Lee. Yeah, okay. Um, so in, in, in an odd way, uh, these were all the cutting edge, these were the young, um, the young Turks of the early 1970s. And they did make a, 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 a statement of their own identity at Worldcons, and George Martin still does this. I mean, he's he's still the, the thing. One of the things I think is eminently likable likable about George is that he he goes to Worldcons to see his old friends. He likes people who knew him when he was a science fiction writer, yeah. uh, and only. But the point that uh, that Dish was making in that original article, which George subsequently 
wrote a response to was that you know, this cutting-edge generation of, of people are sort of playing a game that Dish didn't understand. And he thought it was gaming the Hugos. They, they weren't doing that. He has no evidence of that at all. But what he did, what, what, what he did suggest, or what was later suggested to me by all Aldous is that with that group of writers, with Varley and Bryant and Bonda McIntyre and Tannis Lee, you had really the first generation of writers who grew up wanting to win a Hugo. That's plausible to me, I guess. I mean, if you think the the Hugos started in the mid-50s, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to Aldous Budras about this. Budras, this is his argument, uh, which I can misrepresent all I want to because I'm the only one who knows it anymore. Budras said that his generation, the generation of himself and Robert Sheckley and Michael Shara and, um, and, and, and a few other writers, actually just a year or two ahead of Ellison and Silverberg, were the first generation who grew up knowing they could make a living writing science fiction. Yeah. Asimov and Heinlein didn't do that. So you had a generation that came of age in the early 50s uh, that knew they could be science fiction writers for a living, and that was a revelation. By the 70s, you have a generation that grew up with the Hugo Awards. Um, and George Martin is, I'm not sure, maybe he's a year or two older than I am. But you're talking about people who uh, were, you know, in their, by the time they were in their teens, the Hugo's Award had been, Hugo Awards had been going on for a decade or so. So the idea of that as a goal, of that kind of recognition within the field, was something that no generation of writers before these people no. had thought of. Yeah. And it's interesting to look at what happened to that generation. Because you mentioned Varley having had a stunning career that got derailed. Um, Ed Bryant had a very impressive uh, career. He'd gotten, I think, a nebula for giants uh, sometime. He he got involved with... um, uh, He'd written some terrific stuff. Um, I know he was sort of sidetracked by disease and by physical disability. You have Vonda McIntyre, who's still around um again another writer who's not recognized as much as she should be and of course the anomaly in that group is george martin himself uh who actually had a very good sort of traditional science fiction career until he went to hollywood and then if it hadn't been for hollywood the the story of george martin would be a very different one that's true i think you're right and probably a much more interesting one well, um, see, I, I am, a, I'm, a, I, I am a, a supporter of the view that we we are seeing this the, the, the sad, tragic version of George R. R. Martin. Oh, really? Yes, I am. You know why? He, I, I read Game of Thrones the first book, and I haven't read any more of it. I watched the first season, and I haven't you know watched any more of it. And I sit there and I go, "There's this guy who wrote these great books up till Game of Thrones." And this guy, who would have read, written other great books, and who was one of the best short story writers that we saw, and he's off trudging through this endless damn fantasy series, which has eaten 20 years of his life, and has prevented us having the amazing books and stories that he would have written if he hadn't been stuck writing this damn set of fantasy novels. Well, first of all, okay, uh... I've read all of the Game of Thrones series. I read the first two volumes, and I think they're terrific. I think stylistically, and from a point of view, and from the directness, and from the yeah, from the brutality, 
uh, they introduced an element of hard-boiled realism into fantasy, which really hadn't been there. There had been violence, but there hadn't been this kind of... The, the, the point of view, actually, Peter Straub, who had never read a fantasy novel before in his life, zipped through the series and said, this is, this is solid, on-the-ground writing, by which he was talking about manipulation of the point of view. Mm-hmm. And he was absolutely right about that. So I think that's terrific. Uh, I think that to say to somebody like George Martin, I would rather have, to, I'd, I'd rather see some more stories like Sand Kings, um, rather than having you make a billion dollars, is not the kind of thing he's going to necessarily. Look, um, look, 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 no, 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 no. Well. Let's be realistic. I'm never going to go up to George in a bar and say, "Damn, Game of Thrones, you shouldn't do it." It's his life. He's going to write what he wants, and I'm delighted that he's. Been, I mean, he's, he's a nice guy, and I'm delighted he's been successful, mm. but. The proposals for the novels that he was talking about writing before he wrote Game of Thrones all sounded more interesting than Game of oh, Thrones. Sure. And, and if you look at the stories that he was writing immediately before Game of Thrones, I mean, he mm-hmm. goes out and he throws down probably the greatest werewolf story ever written in the, in, in the year or two before Game of Thrones comes along in the skin mm-hmm. trade. He writes, I mean, some of the best science fiction, some of the best science fiction and horror, amazing stuff, right? And then he does Game of Thrones. Now, Game of Thrones, the actual first novel, is terrific. Um, mm-hmm. After that, I lost interest, and I watched the you know sort of the, say the first series, and I went, "It's the same plot, but with oh look, we're on HBO, boobs, you know." And that's fine, I guess. But yeah, I'd rather have had the other stuff. It would have been much more interesting. That's because you're a literary reader, I guess. Maybe also because like I, also because like I studied the War of the Roses, right? I, I kind of get what's well, going to happen, and, and you kind of understand what's what, what's going on there. Uh, and and I, I was talking to George. I mean, it turns out that uh, one of my favorite novels of his, going back to when he was experimenting with genres, and he was playing with genres long before he moved into. I mean, there, there's certainly Fever Dream as a horror novel. I really liked Armageddon Rag, which apparently. Mm-hmm. Not only almost ended his career, but is still to this day his least selling book. Oh, sure. And there's another book which I, he was going to do, I think, called Black and White and Red All Over, which yeah. sounds terrific. But we get Game of Thrones. And what's more, it's going to take it, let's be realistic, another five or ten years to finish that. I th- it, 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 it's something he's gotten himself into, and I, and I know it feels a little bit like a trap to him, like he can't do anything else until he finishes the next book. Um, but the other, on the other hand, anything he writes after Game of Thrones, if he gets out from under this, is going to be a bestseller. Um, yeah. It'll, yeah. It, 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 it'll be like J.K. Rowling publishing A Casual Vacancy, which I didn't read, but I watched the TV series, and it's a pretty good mystery. It's a pretty good English religious mystery. Yeah. It's, but because it's J.K. Rowling, it's way up on, the, I think, number one on the Times bestseller list. Yeah. George is fixed for life with that. And I I can't say I begrudge him it. I don't begrudge all. him it at all. I mean, I don't begrudge George anything. I've got no right to, but also I don't. I just would rather have seen the other stories that he would have written, because I think they all would have been more interesting than Game of Thrones. I wish Game of Thrones had been a standalone fantasy novel and he had moved on to other stuff. I can understand that, and and not having read far enough into the series to know if it holds up, I can't speak knowledgeably. Oh, I know all sorts of people. I know I respect say it's terrific, so I'm not putting it down exactly. in that way at all. So yeah, but I'd rather have people the other stuff. Are, 
people I know who are very critical readers, people who don't even read fantasy, understand that this is in a groove now. It's really good. It's it's not really flagged in invention, apparently, you know, up to the entire number of volumes that's been published so far. Uh, but you're absolutely right. If a writer becomes successful at doing one thing, he's not going to do another thing. There are very few writers, um, and probably we could count them on the fingers of one finger, yep. who can write anything they want. And that, that's Stephen King. Yeah, that's true. He can write a science fiction novel. He'll write a hard-boiled mystery novel. He'll write a Western story and get it published in The New Yorker. Uh, I don't think James Patterson could do that. I, I don't think George Martin could do that. So the idea of getting so successful that readers will read literally anything you write is... I don't think it's going to happen again after King. Well, okay. Yes and no. Uh, I think several writers are more than successful enough to have some have people read whatever you write. It's read it take it seriously and appear in top-notch literary venues with it. That's the difference. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, J.K. Rowling could write a Western tomorrow, and I guess the Paris Review would maybe publish it if they wanted to sell some more copies, but yeah, it's, you're, it doesn't feel out of place to hear that Stephen King's going to be in the Paris Review with anything he wants to write. You're right. Okay, let me defend The New Yorker for a second here, because, uh, and the Paris Review, for that matter. By and large, I'm not trying to put them down, like- Gary. Well, you just said that Paris Review wants to sell a few more copies they could run Stephen King's story. <coughs> That's not why the New Yorker runs Stephen King's stories. The, the newsstand sales of any fiction magazine in the world are trivial compared to the subscriber base these days. Yeah. So by and large, the New Yorker, and, and, by, and there's a point that to be made, somebody said this on a, a discussion board I was on, that maybe Stephen King is a little bit more careful about rewriting about stylistic flourishes, about characterization, about dialogue. Maybe he's just a little bit more careful when he knows he's going to sell this to The New Yorker. To know. It would be interesting to hear his take on it, I suppose. We we could ask him at some point, I suppose, but we haven't exactly made arrangements for that yet. I'm going to, by the way, now go out on a limb with something completely different. First, I'm going to tell you, today I did something, Gary. Another topic change? Just a quick one before, just just a song before we go. Um, okay. I d- I did something today that I've not done in decades, Gary. Which is I got a book out from a library. I, you know, you just embarrassed me. I don't even know if I have a library card anymore. I don't. Well, this was actually I, I posted something on the internet yesterday because I was trying to get a hold of a book, which I'll tell you about in a moment. Uh, and someone sort of pointed me towards the open library on the internet. Oh, really? Where, where you can like take books out on the internet. Um, I even via the Internet Archive, which I was completely unaware of. The Internet Archive I knew about. Yeah. But explain but, it to us. Well, uh, it appears to be a, what, a not-for-profit that digitizes texts and makes them available as e-books or whatever else as an online library, mm-hmm. and... You can take books out, and I assume, I don't know, that somehow they make some money that goes back to the author. I hope that they do. They should. But I was looking for this book, which I'll tell you about in a moment, and they were able to help me when nobody else could. And, like, it's a library, and I'm like, huh. But there's still part of me going, oh, I want to own a copy of the book because, well, that's my particular hang-up. Yeah. But, hey, you know. Now, the book that, that, that I got is a separate issue. And I'm a little bit shocked, Gary, though I'm grateful that libraries exist, that 
there's an Ursula Le Guin book that's actually out of print. Really? Yeah. Shall uh, I try to guess which one it is? Yeah. Oh, okay. Go for it. Um. Well, it can't be any of the Hainish novels. <laughs> um. A, a Sea Road. No, 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 no. I actually no. own a copy of Sea Road, Gary. Um, right. Language of the Night. Essays on fantasy and science fiction. Really? That's out of print. That was a Harper book, as I recall. Yes, it was. And, and there were two of it. It was originally edited by Susan Wood, who is, I think, who was one of the interesting, one of the, one of the finest fan critics we had who died prematurely. And, and it was, as I recall, there was a small press edition of it and then later reissued in an expanded edition by Harper. Yeah, yeah, well, by Putnam, I think, who were over there at the time. Put- and it's still, like, it's a fairly short book. It's only about 180 or 200 pages long. But I'm surprised because, for various reasons, I wanted to read the book just this week. And I thought, what I'll uh-huh. do is I'll go out, I'll jump online, I'll buy a copy, right? There's yeah. no print copies available. And because of the vagaries of international shipping and the way that ABE Books hooks up, if I pay $5 for a copy used, which is I'm happy to do, it's $35 mm-hmm. worth of postage. Well, yeah, well, yeah, it's true. And I'm like, well, I don't want to spend... $35 in post to the damn thing. And then I thought, I'll get an e-book. Well, there's no e-book. And it actually turns out that it, I don't think it's the only book of her essays that are out of print, but it certainly is out of print. And I would have thought, yeah, and this, this might tie in with other conversations you and I are having privately, I think it would be great for some academic press to do a collected essays. Uh, that would be very interesting because she did have another... Um, collection of more general essays. Uh, the language of the night is mostly about science fiction and fantasy. There was one, and I can't recall the title. It, was, it had it had wind or or oceans or something in the title um, that dealt with her more general essays. But language of the night is kind of a classic. Language of the night is one of those books that people ought to have uh, because it included some classic essays defining. Science fiction and fantasy. Fantasy and Mrs. Brown, uh, science fiction and Mrs. Brown is, is a seminal essay in the field, along with Joanna Russ's essays and Aldous Budras's essays, and going all the way back to, to, to Knight and, uh, and Blish, who we had a panel about, at, um, about their criticism at ReaderCon. All those things are kind of foundational texts in determining how we read and talk about science fiction and fantasy. I've lost your yeah, sorry, audio. No, you got it back. Sorry. It actually turns out that Le Guin has three or four collections of audio, of essays in the world. The Wave of the Mind, Dancing at the Edge of the World, The Language of the Night, and Steering the Craft, which is about writing. Mm-hmm. Now, the other three are in print and fairly easily available, but this particular one is gone. And I think it should be in print. I mean, I would love to see somebody somewhere bring it back into print so I can buy a copy. I mean, I'm grateful to the internet archive from having a copy that I can grab a hold of um, though I don't know whether I mean like I say I don't know if they've got it legally which is a bit dodgy but I'd rather be buying a book from from Ursula Le Guin myself I think it's true it's worth, it's worth checking with it because certainly you're right a university press should jump on a book like that or someone like 12th uh, Planet Press or 12th Planet for that matter yeah. absolutely because well, one of the one of some of the most interesting and provocative and funny Joanna Russ essays appeared from Liverpool University Press in the country you have never seen, 
um, which is not the most. It, it may still be in print, but it's no, not no, the most, no, 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 no. It's about seventeen thousand dollars a copy, Gary. You're kidding? No, no. It might, it might be, might be fifty thousand dollars a copy. I know that. Uh, I think you can get a digital, an electronic copy, uh, and I'd have to search for this uh, online to confirm it for like a hundred pounds or something. You're making me think I could buy the digital copy for a hundred pounds and sell my hardcover copy for fifteen thousand dollars or whatever. That that bit is a little bit of. Um, exaggeration on my behalf but hmm. i would say but seriously i went looking for a copy because i, I want a, a bookshelf of the best science fiction and fantasy non-fiction that i can get and i want uh-huh. I, I don't particularly want secondary text I'm, I'm not looking for critics about people i want to read james blish talking about people i want to read joanna rush talking about people i want what? to read damon knight talking about people i want to read ursula Guin. right and here we go. If you go on, go to Amazon.com right now, that clicking in the background, dear listeners, is me going clicky on the line. A paperback, a paperback, uh-huh. Gary, of Country You Have Never Seen is selling for £250. Good grief. Yes. And this segues into what will be our final subject, because we're getting towards the end of it, but is the insane nature of some literary estates, Gary. Because the reason that country you've never seen is in that that parlous state of availability, when people like mm-hmm. me would be happy to pay a reasonable price for it, uh, is because the estates are difficult to deal with, is my understanding. The Russ estate is notoriously terribly difficult to deal with. Oh, really? Yes, terribly difficult. Now, mostly not from what I can tell through malice of forethought, which happens somewhere else, but because... As I understand it, they just don't respond. You know, the literary agent and whatever else just doesn't respond. Oh, especially still with the Virginia Kid Agency, I believe. Well, see, but that that doesn't gel with my experience of the v- of Virginia Kid, who I've dealt with professionally and are absolutely fine to deal with. There's something going on, and they do not respond. And so, you know, I, mean, I know that, and I hope I'm not talking out of school here. I know that. A small press reached out to attempt to do a digital edition of Country You've Never Seen and got no real response at all. And well, there's a, there, there's a uh, archivist for the uh, uh, for the SFWA. I think it's Bud, Bud Webster who tries to keep track of literary estates, and it apparently is a full time job because well, we ran across this uh, when we were doing the. The 1950s novels for the Library of America. We're probably going to run it, uh, run across it again, again when we're doing the 1960s novels. But it turns out that the biggest nightmare there was the Alfred Bester estate. Yeah. Um, about which there's a lot of folklore about his leaving his estate to his bartender, and uh, but but part of this estate was with with agency in New York. There were like three or four different people who had to sign off on different things. And as you and I know from our own involvement with. Uh, the Locust Foundation and the Lafferty Estate, before that happened, there must have been a dozen distant relatives who had to sign off on anything, which, which was almost a guarantee of making his work unavailable sure. uh, in the distant future. And, and part of the problem is that a lot of science fiction writers, probably like Lafferty uh, and probably like Bester, didn't think that their estates were ever going to amount to anything. Well, th- that's true, and also some of them may have had conflicted relationships, I guess, with their executors, the people mm-hmm. who ended up being, a, which which is another issue. But I mean, I'm going to hold up a book to the camera, Gary, 
And this is a Getting textbook example. Mm-hmm. I'm holding up a copy of Getting Into Death and Other Stories by Thomas M. Dish, one of the great writers of the 1960s and 1970s in science fiction. Yes. One of the smartest people ever to write in the field, one of the most gifted. And I know that our friend Ian Mond is jumping up and down going, yes, 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 at the moment. But his work is largely and difficult to get. It's difficult to get, and I imagine that his nonfiction, because he's written a couple of books about science fiction that are very provocative, one of which is marginally loony but provocative. Uh, I wonder if those are still in print. Probably not. And I mean, I would love to see. I'd love to see a collected stories of um, Tom Dish. I would love to see one. That'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, insane estates. You know, sort of stuff. What I would say, by the way, if you are a writer and you're listening to this podcast, if you're the friend of a writer and you're listening to a podcast, what I would ask you to do is have a serious discussion about you know. The, the, the posthumous future of your work, which will, will, will aid your family and whatever else. Now, you may not want to aid them. You might want to be a spiteful bastard, frankly. I don't know. But it would be nice to think your work could continue on it in, you know, and be read into the future, and you have to make it available. Um, otherwise, it will dwindle and disappear. I mean, it's not just the, um, you know, the, 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 the limitations and restrictions of what everybody wants to read. I mean, I'm going to guess, though I don't know it to be true, that the limited availability of Joanna Russ is dependent on the difficulty of her, her, her estate to deal with. I know there are people who have been interested in doing a collected stories. I know that our good friend uh-huh. Graham Slate devoted a considerable amount of time to compiling a manuscript of the said book, uh, and yet it is yet to emerge into you know, to, you know, to the world at large, which is a great pity. Um, and, and it's it's you know, you're absolutely correct, and I think that this is not only true about getting your literary estates in order, but uh, but the question of donating your papers to a library somewhere. I think part of the problem is, <coughs> as I said, that writers like Bester now Joanna Rust was herself an academic, so she probably knew her way around this. But earlier generations of writers didn't think anyone didn't think their work would have any life beyond them at all. Yeah. They didn't care where the papers were deposited. If they could find a library that was willing to take them, they were grateful. If they could find somebody who was willing to act as a literary executor, that was great. But they, they didn't really think there was a heritage there. I mean, Robert Block, who was certainly one of the most significant writers of crime and horror and terror fiction of the 20th century, ended up giving a chunk of his papers to the University of Wyoming for no other reason than there was a librarian there who really thought it would be cool to have Robert Block papers. Yeah. Um, uh, and, he did, he, and then writers have gotten more sophisticated about that since then. But, but the two issues are very much worth reminding people of, that writers who think of themselves as commercial writers grinding out book after book um, may be writing classic books that will continue to generate <laughs> income for years after they die. It's true. Um, and it's but it, it, it's sad that you have to remind reader, writers of that. And and literary papers are weird anyway. I mean, I, I had a lengthy correspondence this past week about Robert A. Heinlein, believe it or not, mm-hmm. and about a book called The Number of the Beast. Yes, about what the correct edition of it is. Well, yes, because there's a thing called the Panky Barsoom edition of The Number of the Beast. He's going what? What the what? Ex- exactly. That's what's Panky actually, is a kind. 
breaded chicken, I thought, or maybe this panko. is panko. Well, P-A- yeah, panko is the chicken, uh, or is the breadcrumbs. Uh, P-A-N-K-I, panky. Panky Barsoom edition. And the Panky Barsoom edition of Number of the Beast is the first full draft of the book before he went back and rewrote it completely. Oh. And it is 50 to 60,000 words longer than the published version of The Number of the Beast. And originally, and this is where, well, I want to sort of bop around what's interesting about this. It's kind of interesting that it exists. I became aware that it existed because I had a conversation with Stephen Pagel who at mm-hmm. the time was the proprietor of M- Misha Merlin Press. And right. Misha Merlin were the initial publishers for the this, the uh, collected works of Robert Heinlein under the Virginia edition title, mm-hmm. a, a series which I find perpetually disappointing, but that's my own hang-up. And that uh, Misha Merlin had just published their first batch of Virginia edition titles, and they're about to do Number of the Beast, and he, was t- he told me they were going to do the Panky Barsoom edition. They were going to put out the 60,000 words of extra text, which I thought was a fairly horrific idea anyway, because Number of the Beast is not a book you need more of. No, that's true. You know, and I, I, I would also go further, actually. You know, we sometimes, we're going to talk about this, sorry, I just want, we're going to talk about this at another time in the future, so we'll come back to it maybe. Oh. But I just want to say that if I read The Number of the Beast in 2015, and it was my first Robert Heinlein book, that would be my last Robert Heinlein book. I don't know, uh, I've talked to people who are passionate Heinlein fans, uh, some mm-hmm. of whom are mutual friends, some of whom have grown up reading Heinlein. And The Number of the Beast is the hardest book for them to account for. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you're absolutely right. It raises another issue, because this is an issue that comes up with... It's going to come up again with the Library of America now that we're working on a, a volume for the 60s, which is, what text do you want to use? Do you want to use the text that mm. the author may have intended or that may have got cut or that may have got rearranged um, or do you want to use the text that people actually read at the time the book came out? In other words, going back to the 50s volume, is The Stars by Destination or is let's, The Space Merchants, which had a slightly different uh, ending in the, in the Galaxy serial, do you want to talk about the book that we now being able to reconstruct the author's intentions or reading, or do you want to offer the book that had an impact on readers when it was originally published? Well, for my money, it would be the book as it was first published, unless the author for some reason came out and was really violently dismissive of it in some way. Uh, and I certainly also wouldn't be publishing an odd variant text. What I was going to just finish up, and it t- does tie in, um, mm. about the Panky Barsoom edition, is... Yeah. It was sent with Heinlein's papers to the Heinlein archive when it was actually sort of uh, marked as do not send to archive. He wanted it destroyed and dis- to disappear from the world. This is interesting. I mean, this is like cop- not, not only was it sent to the, the archive and flagged as do not archive, but if you go online to the Heinlein archive, you can mm-hmm. buy a PDF of it for 15 bucks. Jeez. See, this is one of the things that, 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 that this is one of the areas for fandom and scholarship, and we're getting into an arcane area here. I know. Yeah, <laughs> come into conflict because, to some extent, if you're if you're a scholar of American literature and you want to reestablish the initial text and do sort of textual analysis of the different versions of, let's say, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, that's an academic enterprise. It's yeah. not the sort of thing you would impose on general readers who've never read The Scarlet Letter before. 
what happens when you get aficionados or advocates or fanatics even wanting to preserve the, every single word that a writer ever wrote, then you get into a situation where, well, no, the real version of, it's not just Heinlein, uh, the real version of this Heinlein novel or this William Gibson novel or this Paolo, the real version should be the one that was sent in originally. It should be the first draft before editors messed with it and so forth and so on. Most working writers that I know today would say, no, please don't do that. Editors are actually very helpful to me, and the cuts they made were actually very good. I think that's true, but this is where you end up mapping intent. Now, can I just say, for my money, if I was doing the Library of America volumes and I was LOA, I would go mm -hmm. with the most famous version of the text. That would be my benchmark. But I have to say, there are noted examples where the author's text was edited in such a way that the author was notably unhappy with it. Yes. And what do you do then? I mean, and this example, which you've, you've mentioned earlier in the podcast, is Stranger in a Strange Land. Now, I mean, I was uh -huh. reading a little bit about it, and it seems clear that Heinlein was deeply unhappy with the edit, some of the final edits to Stranger. Yes. And he felt that it was cut beyond what made it work. It was cut beyond the bare bones, if you like, and damaged materially by the editing, but he couldn't fight his way through past his editor to get the full text published. So when... Virginia Heinlein took the copyright in the book back and then published the longer text, she was, she was actually putting out the text that he actually would have wanted to have had come out all along. What do you do there? Well, the problem there is, first of all, we don't know if Stranger in a Strange Land would have become the sort of cult favorite that it was and the kind of legendary novel it was had it been his full, full edition. In other words, it's, it's an aesthetic call. Did the, did the cuts actually harm or improve the, the, the text? And that, that, that's impossible to answer, probably. Uh, the second way of approaching that is whether or not um, Heinlein's original vision was uh, maybe a little bit bloated, because on the basis of uh, many of the novels that came after Stranger, uh, there's an argument to be made that as he became more and more and more successful, remember Stranger was the first big breakout book, the more successful he became, it appeared the less edited he was. Mm -hmm. And you eventually end up with Number of the Beast. And you see, that was a very convincing argument until they published his first novel. For, for Us the Living? Yeah, For Us the Living, which then tended to basically uh, support the idea that he was the same kind of loon all along. He was just writing more, co uh, more commercially, you know, uh, in the interim period, and that it was the same kind of... I mean, the kind of stuff that you were getting with I Will Fear No Evil was probably the kind of stuff you'd have chosen to write anyway. Well, yeah, that's probably true. And, but, but, but the difference is this, that uh, for us, The Living, which I don't think should have been published, frankly. I, agree. I don't think it does, doesn't do Heinlein's reputation any good. It had the virtue of being really short compared to later <laughs> novels. Look, there's no doubt that when Heinlein moved his attention beyond um, juvenile fiction... Mm -hmm. And when Heinlein had the commercial clout to do as he would because he had become you know, iconically successful sort of post-stranger, then it seemed as though anything would go. But I mean, okay, and, and he could get away with anything. And yet, I mean, weirdly, and I completely distrust this, and I would actually flag some of these books to people as like, really, not only shouldn't you read them, but probably don't read them unless you're really determined to, because I won't take any responsibility for it. But I mean, books like Time Enough for Love. I loved Time Enough for Love when I was growing up. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Mm -hmm. Didn't mind mm -hmm. I Will Fear No... I read I Will Fear No Evil probably three times. 
Uh, I read Farnham's Freehold a couple of times. I read Time Enough for Love a bunch of times. Um, I I enjoyed them all. Um, I actually, when I first saw that Number of the Beast was coming out, and it echoed a lot of the same characters, I was thinking, yeah! Of course, I read it and I went, no! But I was going, yeah! The, the point where I really gave up was everything after Friday, basically. When you get to, to Sail Beyond the Sunset, The Number of the Beast. Yeah. Those things are just... They would have been better off never published for my money. Well, actually, I, to, to be honest, I could I could read The, the Sail Beyond the Sunset, but I wasn't reading it as a novel. I was reading it as a philosophical tract because by that time I was more or less interested in Heinlein's ideas and I wasn't even terribly concerned about the plot. The Number of the Beast I couldn't get very far into at all. But the, the basic question is this. The basic question is, if you read these novels repeatedly and fell in love with them when you were younger, um, do you really want somebody telling you now, no, the version you read wasn't the real one, here's the one you should be reading? No, I don't. Because it, I've ne- I loved uh, Strange, Strange Land. I never went back and read the longer version. I wouldn't want to either. I mean, there are a lot of arguments to be made. And this is not just true of science fiction. There are a lot of arguments to be made that this is why publishers and editors exist. Yeah, yeah. They make books better. I mean, I've read articles about the original drafts of The Great Gatsby, for example, which was called Tromalchio and West Egg or something, uh, a little bit longer. I'm not sure how much it got edited, but it got edited. Thomas Wolfe, who was one of the great blathering novelists that went on for hundreds of pages, probably would never have been published if it hadn't been for an editor sort of carving this enormous amount of stuff into uh, into some kind of uh, yeah. shape. So, so I, I, I'm a full believer in the notion that writers can be and usually are improved by good agents, good editors, and good publishers. Oh, I believe that too. I do. Uh, now, this doesn't mean, just as a caveat in case anyone's listening, that self-published people cannot be well-edited and well-published and all that other kind of stuff, because I think that absolutely happens. But generally, I agree. Every now and again, mm. something comes along that's so generous that is uh, brilliantly executed and basically goes out into the world almost perfect with very little done to it. But not a lot. Yeah, not, not a lot. lot. And even some of the self-published writers now are learning to hire editors and to, to at the very least, get beta readers to, to look at the yeah. material. And I think if you talk to honest... Well, if you talk to writers honestly, not if you talk to honest writers, if you talk to writers honestly, <laughs> um, most of them will agree with that. I mean, Stan Robinson is effusive in his praise of Tim Holman. And the yeah. difference he's made to his work in the last, you know, sort of five or six years, and where I, I you routinely find you will hear when a writer encounters an editor who they think is really skillful and understands what they're trying to do, they're very, very effusive in their praise. I mean, just as they are damning when they feel like they're writing against them and they're having, you know, they found someone who they feel is tin-eared and is is damaging what they're doing, and that's fair yeah. enough. That's how, you know they should complain if, if they feel that way. But you know, look, it's interesting. We're not going to get to the end of it. Um, all we can do is say that we hope that that Le Guin collection of essays is, you know, it finds a home. We can turn around and say that my idea, I, I hope you'll, you, you may agree, I don't know, uh, that there should be a library of science fiction discussion that, that people could actually get as a nice uniform set somewhere. You know, we get those books, I think that'd be a great idea. Books like the Joanna Russ book, books like the early James Blish books, books like the Le Guin book. I think that would be well, a, a service to the world. A lot of these are available on the web, but I don't know what uh, the James Blish, the William Atheling books, uh, the issue at hand and more issues at hand, 
or the Damon Knight book. Uh, they were uh, in, in in search of wonder. They were published by Advent here in Chicago, mm. and I assume those editions are still available somewhere. I do have a quick question before okay. we close because <laughs> it's a question to ask you in Australia. Oh yeah. <coughs> How did Australia get to name the William Atheling Award when he was clearly an American who and who died in Britain? I don't know. You just took that name from us, didn't you? I guess so, yeah. I mean, my guess is there was a bunch of nerdy fans who were starting up a, an award, and they were aware of William Atheling because he was one of the more famous critics, and they were probably aware of the fact that it was Damon Knight writing pseudonymously, and so they thought, thought that... Or sorry, James, writing pseudonymously, and they thought it was terribly clever. I mean, don't forget, there was lots of old-style fandom back here in the day. We had Don Tuck you know, hammering out the, the original SF Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia. And all that kind of thing. And so it's exactly uh, up there, Ali. And I wouldn't even be you know, surprised if some of the original Australian science fiction review crowd, uh, ASFR, if they were involved or something in that. Wouldn't surprise me at all. It's a very standard thing for what was a classic conservative version of science fiction fandom in the 60s to do here. But it was a very far, far-seeing thing. It was, it was way ahead of its time. I mean, it's a very clever name for, for, for an award. Um, why, 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 why do you want it, do you? Um, I don't have anything to... We don't have any awards like that. So first of all, how many critical awards are there in the United States? I thought it was like four billion. There's the Pilgrim Award and the other ones. Aren't there like billions of critical awards? Pilgrim Award is for a lifetime achievement. The IAFA Award is for a lifetime achievement. And that's about it. There are no categories in Hugo's, Nebula's, Crawford... Not well, there's, well the there's related work kind of stuff. Well, there's related work and nonfiction and that sort of thing. But if you're a critic, I mean, believe me, I've been through this. I'm, I'm, I go through this every year. If you're a critic and you're up against, I don't know, the art of Neil Gaiman, or if you're, if you're up against chicks dig anything, you're not going to win. Why? Do you want to start one, Gary? Is that what you're no. saying? Yeah, well, if no, the, well, well, if the Wolf Awards, you can win I the Gary. I'd well, like to win not, a Gary. Now you're being patronizing. Now you're now now you're asking me to die so someone can name an award after me. And I'm not going. No, well, no, 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 no. We just started up. I, think, I reckon I could crowd I could crowdfund the Gary pretty readily. Get. <laughs> well, you just go for it. <laughs> well, I mean, we live in a world where there's a best online nonfiction edited every year. I mean, we're, we're going to talk to Renee uh, hopefully in a few weeks, and. Mm. Uh, she's just edited the or co-edited the, yeah. the the best nonfiction. If you can have that, why can't you have a best a best nonfiction? Oh, I know what to do. Watch, watch this, not Gary. Watch. Okay. Now th- this is a skill that I've been practicing for some time. Neil Harrison, you're listening to this podcast. I know you're listening to this podcast because you listen to this podcast. This is a job for you, Neil. We need a critical o- award. Thank you. That was. Underhanded, but slightly yeah, evilly good. Hey, I like it. Totally with you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Hi, Neil. The, the, the last thing I want to say this because I was at uh, Archipelagon in Mariham, uh, Oland, Finland, and the last thing on the program was was it was Neil and, and 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 me talking, and it was delightful. Neil is an extremely bright uh, reader of science fiction, extremely good editor. Um, it's, it's, it's Strange Horizons. And the room was absolutely packed with people from mostly England and Finland and Sweden, 
who really wanted to hear about science fiction criticism and reviewing. So there is some interest out there. There is. I think this is definitely something that Neil should do. And I mean, I think you could, I mean, there are all kinds of people who, who it could be named after. It doesn't just have to be called the Gary. You get different categories. You get a Gary, you get a John. I mean, it's endless. It's going to be brilliant. I think it should happen. It should happen, absolutely. Let's okay. work on well, it. Well, on, on, that, on that note, though, surely we, this, this rambling journey through Waffle should come to an end. We've only changed topics radically four times, I've been keeping count. Yeah, I bet you don't even remember all of them. Because there's lots. Because there was, there was the antho- tribute anthology bit, and then there was the, well, the nonfiction bit, and there was the literary well, we estate bit. That. We're done. Okay, well, we're done. Well, on that note, I will talk to you next week, as uh, you know, I, I hope. Uh, I hope everybody you know, will, will enjoy this podcast when it finally comes out. Yeah, so I will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week, absolutely. And until then, we will remain the Cooch Street Podcast. Yeah, Cooch Street Podcast.